This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. So I, uh, I saw something this week that messed me up. <laughs> um, it was a, a really tough thing to see, and it kind of just, it broke my heart. It was an image that once I saw it, I just, I couldn't shake it. It was like lodged in my brain. I couldn't get it out of my mind. It just messed me up. And in just a bit, I'm going to tell you precisely what that was, and you'll see what I mean. But at this point, even without seeing what exactly it is I'm referring to or knowing any of the details, I'm sure each of y'all can relate to having a week at some point where something just hits you and messes you up. It's like super glued, (laughs) onto your psyche. It's like stuck and you can't stop thinking about it. And the more you want to stop thinking about it, the more you can't. And I know that for each of you uh, sitting in this room, you've probably had this kind of experience. You've received news in the middle of the day or the middle of the week that you just weren't expecting. You were blindsided. It was like a punch in the gut. Uh, Maybe you've had a bombshell just dropped on you. Maybe you experienced loss or uh, you were hit by tragedy and you were not ready. And even if you were, you would have still gotten messed up by it. I've been here just three years and I've walked through some stuff with (laughs) y'all. Death with some of y'all and family matters and relationship issues, and fears, and failures, and past hurts, and present hurts, and I've listened as some of y'all have poured out your hearts in trusting me with the sacred task, even if only in small ways, of helping you shoulder your burdens and your secrets, and I don't take that lightly. I really do think it's a sacred trust. I don't merely get to teach and preach, although I love that, but I get to walk beside you all. And I've gotten to walk beside y'all, if you've invited me, in in some of those weeks where life, where your body, where your health, where someone, where something has messed you up. And thankfully, numerous of y'all have uh, been there with me when I've been messed up. And that's all part of deep community. That's what deep community looks like. And, you know, for the last several weeks, we've, since we started the series on the Gospel of Mark, a recurring theme has been the kingship of Jesus. And we saw, uh, for those of you who were able to look at that sermon or be here for that sermon, in verse 1, how the very first verse of Mark's Gospel proclaims his kingship. And how his baptism reiterates and proclaims that kingship. And how his overcoming of Satan in the wilderness proclaims that kingship. And and last week, 
I was talking about how all that is rooted in Jesus' incarnation, and that, that's just the start of it, right? And, and today, we're going to turn to our focal passage, which is Mark 1, 14 to 20, and we're going to find Jesus himself speaking about it. He will declare that the kingdom of God has come near in him. He is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. The reign of God resides within him. He is the center of it. And what we're going to see throughout the rest of the Markan narrative is Jesus drawing people into that. People will consistently be gathering around Jesus which is to say coming under the reign of God or coming into the kingdom of God. And the more I dwelt on that this week, the more comfortable I came or became in viewing the phrase kingdom of God as almost synonymous with the phrase we're using, deep community. And I want to flesh that out a little bit more. But before I do, we're going to go ahead, we're going to turn to the start of our focal passage for today. And we're going to notice that Mark, the narrator, he starts off here and he's setting the stage. And then Jesus speaks. In fact, in today's passage, Jesus gets to speak twice. And we're about to read here the first occasion of those two. Here's my translation of Mark 1, uh, 14 and 15. Mark starts, well, after the handing over of John, Jesus came into the Galilee while preaching the good news about God and saying this. This is Jesus. The time has reached its fullness and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and place your allegiance in the good news. Now I'm going to circle back to this notion of kingdom of God and deep community in just a moment. But first, let's look at how Mark is setting the stage here. He begins by informing those engaging this story that John's been handed over. You see that there. Could translate that as well as betrayed. Some of your English versions will no doubt say arrested. And it's, you know, look at it. It's almost as if Mark simply mentions it in passing. When we piece together what we read in the other Gospels, as well as Mark 6, and Mark 10, we know where John was. We know who arrested him, and we know why. He was in the territory of this ruler named Herod Antipas, the figure who arrested him because of his public calls for repentance. Now, Herod Antipas, this ruler, was engaging in an incestuous and adulterous relationship at that time, and so to have John out in public calling for repentance, huh, that's problematic for Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas and Herodias, they need to shut John up. And so he's handed over and he's locked up and later he's murdered. But in the flow of the story right here, as Jesus steps onto the scene, John's behind bars. I've talked a lot about this Jewish historian and propagand Roman propagandist. His name is Josephus, Flavius Josephus. And he tells us that John's locked away down near the Dead Sea, not that far from Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the name, while Mark doesn't give it to us, the name of that place where John was imprisoned was called the Fort 
fortress of Makerus. And just so we can get our bearings, let's reorient ourselves by checking out our map here. So if you've been following this series, you should be familiar with our map. This is ancient Palestine right here. Okay, and I've given you the, the, the bodies of water there that help orient us, right? To the north, we have the Sea of Galilee, where that first circle is up at the top. And to the east, we don't have body of water that we're looking at. And to the south, we have the Dead Sea. And to the west, we have the Mediterranean Sea. And of course, the Jordan River, it starts just above that first one up at the top, the Sea of Galilee. And it flows down through the Sea of Galilee and out of the Sea of Galilee into the Dead Sea. And it's dropping like thousands of feet in the process. It's, it's a descent through the Rift Valley. And so we've also seen where Bethany beyond the Jordan is, right there where that arrow is, where, where John was baptizing, where Jesus got baptized. And it's in the territory of that guy I just mentioned, Herod Antipas. That's where John was doing his baptism. And well, not too far from there, where that arrow is, Bethany beyond the Jordan, you can see it's right there up at the top now. I've got a new map, Bethany beyond the Jordan. And then you can see this other circle down here. This is the fortress of Makerus, a fortress of Herod Antipas. And this is where Herod Antipas, when he arrests John, he sends him down here to this fortress. Still located in Herod's territory, about 50 miles away, about a 10-hour walk, if you're walking. Here's what it looks like today. It's just a bunch of ruins, the fort, uh, Makerus Fortress or the Fortress of Makerus. And here's an image of how it's believed to have been constructed in John's time. You see, this fortress, it's the easternmost fortress of Herod Antipas, and it's where John is murdered. John gets murdered here. He's martyred here. And we'll read about that later in Mark 6. But here, Mark doesn't tell us much about these kinds of things. And in an instant, as it were, we're transported from Makerus here in the south, overlooking the banks of the Dead Sea, up to the north to the Sea of Galilee in Mark's story. And so we're getting our bearings geographically here. Let's also get our chronological bearings. When is this happening? I'm going to take a step back. I want you to hang with me here today. A lot of y'all have heard me talk about Jesus' birth. I believe Jesus was born in the year 6 BCE. That squares best, I think, with all of the historical evidence that we have. It squares with what I think Luke tells us and Matthew tells us. And I believe he was born very close to December 25th, and I think I can show you that from Scripture. It's very easy to do so. I've shown you that in the past. It's not His birth is not based on a pagan holiday, just so you know. I've heard too many preachers say that. It's not correct. So the incarnation occurs in the year 6 BCE, I think, in December. And when we take the evidence that the Gospels give us, we can confidently conclude that John was arrested much later in the fall of 28 CE. And it's during that time, possibly during the month of November of the year 28 CE, that Jesus begins his ministry. I'm, gonna go, I'm not going to go through all the details today of how we get there, but maybe I will in the future. But I think we have enough enough historical and scriptural testimony to get us there. Who was ruling, what the weather patterns were like, and so on and so forth. And so this portion of the story right here begins what we just read in the year 28 CE. Jesus, having been born in 6 BCE, that means he was around uh, age 30 when he started his ministry 
really age 34. And this comports with what Luke tells us in his gospel, in Luke 3.23, that Jesus was around 30 when he started his ministry. And so based on the evidence, we can conclude that Jesus was 34 when he started his public ministry. And so the scene we just read about where Jesus comes onto the scene, Jesus is 34 years old, probably about then. And so this is in November of the year 28. And then about four months later, John is killed in March of 29 CE. And for the next year or year and a half or so, Jesus, he's going to travel around and he's going to engage in all sorts of ministry. In fact, the first 10 chapters of Mark's gospel give us that year and a half of Jesus' ministry. And the last six to eight, or six, sorry, the last six chapters of Mark's gospel give us just one week. So it's kind of interesting. Jesus, I think, dies in April of the year 30 CE. And I want to make two points here. Um, I don't think it's correct to say that Jesus died in the year 33. That's what a lot of people say. I don't think the evidence lines up best with that. I think it's better to conclude he died in 30. Um, I'm not going to break ties with somebody over that, though. That also means that Jesus was not 33 years old when he died. And we often hear that. If he died in the year 30, if you believe he died in the year 30, then uh, he would have been 36. And if you believe he died in 33, he would have been 39. And so our story here begins in the fall of 28. And John is arrested. And by default, it seems, the John's baton is passed to Jesus. And we learn from Luke that as Jesus begins, he goes out and Jesus starts baptizing people, just like John was. We don't hear about that in Mark's story. We have to look elsewhere. But it's intriguing, right? It's intriguing to me, at least, that the scene here starts by water. We're going to read more about that. Jesus approaches these men in water. You almost have to wonder if he was baptizing them. We don't get the, we don't get those details. We can't say for sure, but it's intriguing, kind of curious to think about. And so within the span of one verse, Mark's story shifts from John down at the fortress of Macarus in the south, near the end point of the Jordan River in the Dead Sea, way up to the north, at the start, near the starting point of the Jordan River in the Galilee. And within the span of one verse, right, the narrative carries us about 120 miles. We're transported, and there he is, Jesus, on the scene, preaching. And Mark says that he's preaching the good news, or a lot of translations say the gospel, the evangelion, the gospel of God. It's the same term we encountered in Mark 1.1, by the way. Evangelion, a term underscoring a new king and a new emperor, a new priest and a new prophet. And here it is again. Jesus comes on the scene and it's what he's talking about. You could almost go straight from Mark 1.1 to Mark 1.14 with no interruptions. It's kind of interesting to think about. The beginning of the good news of Jesus anointed one son of God. Jesus came into the Galilee while preaching the good news about God. It's almost like 114 is a restarting of the story, kind of treating everything before as setting the stage, picking back up where we left off. And then in 115b, look at this. Uh, Mark tells us the content of 
Jesus' good news about God. What is it? Jesus says, the time has reached its fullness and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and place your allegiance or pledge your allegiance in the good news. And Jesus says, the time has reached its fullness. The kingdom of God is near. I could probably do an entire sermon series just on that. But I think what essentially Jesus is saying, especially to the fishermen he's about to meet, is this. Look, John's time reached its apex. He's been locked up in Makarus, hundreds of miles away. The baton's been handed off to me. No more waiting on the reign of the kingdom of God. It's right here in front of y'all, in me, in me. I am the embodiment of the kingdom of God. It's never been nearer to y'all. You want to touch the kingdom of God? Reach out and touch me. You want to be part of this reign or this rule of God, the inbreaking of the kingdom? Repent. Repent. Just repent. And pledge your allegiance to me and my Father. And just like that, right, people's lives are going to get messed up, but this time in a good way. <laughs> the kingdom of God is in their midst and it's on a collision course. It's going to wreck, in a good way, so many lives. I know that sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? To wreck something in a good way, but it's true. You know, when Christy and I went to Ethiopia the first time, it happened to us. We saw just utter destitution in some of the places we went. We'd never seen anything like it before. And we saw orphanages loaded with kids, sheet metal shacks for days, Mud floors, hunger, thirst, and it wrecked us. Just absolutely wrecked us for the better. For the good. And once we saw what we saw, we couldn't unsee what we saw. And we, we couldn't go, just come back home and go through life acting like we hadn't seen this. And now that we had seen it, it was imperative that we do something, that we do our part in changing this, our part in having the kingdom of God change this. It messed us up in a good way for the better. And, and not just us. It was for the better of society too, for the better of others and that, that's what's going on here with Jesus. You see, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's not talking about just, oh, this individual inner experience that makes me feel warm and fuzzy. He's not. And, and many Christian, especially evangelical circles, we've really gone wrong right here. The kingdom of God is not just about my personal or my private spiritual experience inside me. It should go without saying, but any true kingdom of God cannot be about a single person and about that individual's private experiences. A kingdom requires peoples, plural, a society, a community. The kingdom of God is about King Jesus and his community. The kingdom of God is about King Jesus and deep community. In other words... The king comes along and he offers us a new society. 
Come, I'm going to start a new society. Y'all join me. The society y'all got, the society y'all have created, it's a wreck, it's a mess. Come join me. We're going to start a new society. You're going to tell other people about it and bring them into our society. And I said last week that the whole point in Jesus coming was to be with us. That was the plan all along. The incarnation was the plan all along, the plan A. We lost, we lose something incredibly beautiful when we simply chalk it up to everything up to Jesus came to die. And I'm not like decreasing that. We absolutely need that. But that's not the whole story. And that's only set in its proper relief when we understand things like the incarnation properly. We can't boil everything down to that. Jesus came to be with us. He tells us as much in Luke's gospel. In Luke 4.18, a point he'll touch on later in Mark 1.38, he's crystal clear, Jesus is, about why he came. Look at this. He's in the temple. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me who on account of anointing me to proclaim good news to the poor has sent me, why? To preach release for the captives and to give sight to the blind, to send away the oppressed with deliverance, to preach the welcome of the Lord. That's why Jesus came right there, to be with the poor, the oppressed, the captives, to preach the good news about God to them. God's news of release and sight, and deliverance, and welcoming God to be with us, to be the head of a new society, a deep community that gets on board with this vision right here and longs to help see this vision through. The kingdom of God is not just my spiritual experience for me. Uh Uh-uh. It's a communal experience. It's all about deep community. And that's that's what we're longing to see right here and live into right here. Here's the thing. There's a prerequisite. We have to follow. We have to buy into the vision and let nothing deter us. We have to be absolutely sold out on the vision. What we say, what we think, what we do, what we invest our time and energy in, what we invest our funds in, what we support, what we vote for, how we live, it all needs to be aimed toward him and his goal. And when people are committed to that, the kingdom of God breaks in and deep community breaks in and we begin seeing a new way of living, a new society emerging, a new way of doing relationships with each other, a new way of being church together and experiencing transformation. And here's why I tell you it starts with following. Where I tell you it starts with following, being followers. You know, being a follower gets such a bad rap these days. And I think much of that's because our culture, listen, has an obsession with leadership. Our culture's obsessed with leadership. I mean, you can go on Amazon, type in the word leadership, and you'll get thousands and thousands of books with that word in the title about that subject. You walk into any bookstore, you may even see a leadership section 
even in Christian bookstores. Our culture is simply addicted to leadership, obsessed with leadership. There are conferences for leaders, leadership seminars, leadership training, leadership workshops and the like. People turn to the scriptures and they look at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses and Jesus, and they're trying to extract leadership principles from them. It's a booming business, this leadership stuff. I want to let you in on a little secret. We are followers. It's part of our DNA. Jesus doesn't say, come, lead me. As we'll see, he's going to say in just a moment twice, come now, behind me. Follow me. That's, that's your proper place. Behind, following. And even as Jesus himself leads, he's also a follower. He follows the lead of the Spirit. He follows the desires of his Father. He's the head follower. And we follow the head follower's lead. We've gotten so lost in leadership that we've neglected a key part of our identity as Christians, followership. That's our word of the week, by the way, followership. I'm just going to define that as the art of actively and creatively following. I define it that way because following Jesus was never meant to be and simply cannot be passive. If you're just sitting back and doing nothing, letting everyone else contribute, you're being passive. That's not following Jesus. That's following the desires of your heart. That's not followership. That's laziness. Followership takes being active. And followership takes creating. It's not just waiting for a leader to give out orders. It's taking initiative and making some things happen within the community's goals. The kingdom of God, deep community, requires followers who are active and creative. Followers who do and make. And one of the modern church's problems is that it's focused so much on creating leaders that it forgot its heartbeat. Followership. And as with any organization, I mean, just think about it, right? As with any organization, when you have too many leaders, too many chefs in the kitchen or cooks in the kitchen, tons of problems start to arise. Businesses fracture over this, right? Churches split over this. And everyone wants to push out their own vision. And people can sense that sort of thing when they visit a church too, for the first time even. But when the community is full of followers and it's bent on healthy followership, that's noticeable. Because there will be a deep unity. There will be earmarks like everyone loving and engaging in deep study and hear deep prayer together and deep service and being a deep community actually, not just a surface level community. And all contributes to that. You know, some research suggests that there are five types of followers. 
I think Mark, actually, if you just read his story, he gives us four types of followers at the least. I want us to look at these, these five types of followers, see if any of them resonate with any of y'all. I'm asking you right now to just take a look at yourself, and if you have to, be brutally honest. Not if you have to, just be brutally honest. The first type is a passive follower. They tend to sit back, as I said, while everyone else works. They're content just being loosely connected to the group, not much effort being put in, not too committed to the communal vision, just doing what's comfortable for them. The second type is the conformist follower. This is a person who's a a yes man or a yes woman. They don't think for themselves. They won't think for themselves. They're active, but only to the degree that they're doing what they're told. And ultimately, (laughs) that hinders the person or persons trying to lead because it allows blind spots to continue existing for the leadership. The third is the nonconformist follower. This is the no man or the no woman. (laughs) They balk at every suggestion and any suggestion. If it's not their idea, expect a fight or an argument. If the idea seems new or novel, expect rejection. If it's not like the old way, the way we used to do it, the way we've always done it, brace yourself for some pushback from these people. It's your classic complainer or figure who tries to maintain control in the group. The only thing they're active in is complaining. The only thing they create is dissension. If they don't like what they're seeing, They'll threaten to step away or just leave. Right? They'll, they'll hold their membership or position of service over your head and threaten you with that. They'll, they'll use it to sort of take, take you hostage. The fourth type is the pragmatic follower. They might be active, but they're going to wait it out and see what everybody else does. They don't create things by themselves, except maybe uncertainty among everybody else. I don't know if we should do this. You heard what we're going to do. You know, they're unsure, and they, they, they spread that unsureness or uncertainty to others. They don't take risks. They lack boldness and courage. They live in fear of what might happen. They often consider themselves realists, but they're just fearists. The fifth type is the exemplary follower. This is the person who's active, who creates, and who, above all, supportive. They've bought into the vision. Uh, of their own accord, and they're on board, full throttle. They aren't going to sit around, wait for something to happen, see who else is in, or just go along with it, or just opt out of it by default. Nah, because they've seen the vision. They've caught the vision, and they're with it. And when it comes to the kingdom of God, in this place, in this community right here at the bridge, which are you? If you're any of the first four, I would submit that you're not where you should be. Something at off, something that's off. Maybe you need to dig a little more and address it. And as we go throughout Mark, we'll see Jesus and his disciples and others who fit into these categories. And you're going you're gonna to continually be confronted with this nagging question, what type of follower are you? Yo, what type of follower are you? You can't escape this question in Mark's gospel. It keeps coming back and back and back. 
like a boomerang, keeps coming back, right? John received a call, John the baptizer. He accepted the commission, and he bore the consequence consequences. And then the baton is handed off to Jesus. Jesus is called. He accepts the commission of his father. And as we know, there's going to be consequences. And then Jesus hands the baton off and we are called and we are commissioned. And we know there's going to be consequences for following Jesus. But are we willing to be followers? That's the question. Are we willing to live lives marked by following and followership? Hmm. Let's just look at the next handful of verses for today's focal pass. I'm going to share a few remarks and then wrap up. Here we go. Mark 1, 16 to 20. Here's my translation. We come back, Mark's narrating. And while going along beside the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting nets into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, come now behind me and I'll make you all become fishers of people. And straight away, after leaving the nets, they followed him. And advancing a little, he saw them, Jacob, the one of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat preparing the nets. And straight away, he called them. And after leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired workers, they went behind them. And so we have this scene here, it seems very simple and nondescript, just the scene of Jesus calling these four fishermen. And, well, they follow him. They take up the task of followership. Now, I, I, bear with me. I need to do some major correcting here, okay? Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this misused. I've heard people preach and teach on this, leading people to think that these four men are just following Jesus blindly. Like they, he just, Jesus just came out of nowhere and boom, they start following him. That's an error. That's error number one. The second is this. Many preach and teach that these guys look just up and left everything to pursue a call to follow Jesus. Just in an instant, it all was gone. Their family, their business, they left everything to just follow that's error too. Both are wrong. Both are false. Here's the reality. These guys were already familiar with Jesus. They knew him already. If you read John's gospel, you see it clearly. For instance, Andrew was already a disciple of John the baptizer. So his brother's going to know who Jesus is too. And as I said, Jesus was also mentored by John, his cousin. It's no accident that Jesus goes to his cousin's followers. He fills them in. Y'all, John's been thrown in prison. Your, your leader's been thrown in prison. And now they follow Jesus. I could build a super strong case for this. I don't need to at this point. But the point is, the guys already knew Jesus. They already knew him. They weren't surprised when Jesus showed up. They weren't shocked. Jesus wasn't an unfamiliar face. They were probably there at Jesus' baptism that we read about earlier. They'd been around Jesus already. And that's why they so naturally follow him. And so enough, right, of this trying to make this seem like, oh, something miraculous that we can spout off about, oh, these guys have blind faith. No, they knew Jesus already. Enough already. Moreover, these guys did not, I repeat, absolutely did not leave everyone in their family and their livelihoods forever. 
Read the rest of the story. How in the world do you think Jesus gets to keep using boats for the rest of the story? And he does use them for the rest of the story. <laughs> what these guys did over the course of the year and a half or so of Jesus' public ministry, they go on short trips with him around the Sea of Galilee, around the area where they all live. They were his transport. Lots of the time they were his transport. And so enough of this, right, making this, uh, this seem like they just all of a sudden up and leave everything. They don't. And I've heard people use this, and here's why I'm going on this tangent, is I've heard people use this to try to justify leaving their spouse. Even in Bible college, I heard people saying such things. Absurd. Jesus called me to the mission field overseas. My wife doesn't want to go, so I guess I'll just divorce her. You kidding me? <laughs> Patently absurd. So these guys, they're super local, super taking super short trips of Jesus around the neighborhood, around the neighborhood lake with Jesus. So, you know, bad interpretation leads to bad theology. And by misreading, we come up with this weak theology of following blindly, abandoning all, maybe even your family. It's ridiculous. Got to read in context. Got to read in context. Let's get our geographical bearings again. Starting today, what you're going to see, this is really cool. What you're going to see is Jesus. He's going all over the area, and these guys are following him step by step, or they're in the boat, but they're with him. Step by step, following him. Look at this. So the location of this scene, which happens again in the fall of 28C, is an area known as Tabga. You can see it with the big red dot there. It's on the northwest banks of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus comes and he, he's talking to these fishermen. It's several hours walk from where these guys are from. You can see the circle up there, Bethsaida. And we need to get familiar with this area because where something happens in this story gives it its context. As I said a few weeks ago, location is everything in Mark's gospel. Location, location, location. So here's something I need you to know as we go forward. Um, this, is a, this is a rough approximation, all right, but I find it helpful. If we take the Sea of Galilee and we just draw a cross right through the middle of it, and we get this sort of quadrants, and each quadrant on this map is known for something. The northwest quadrant, you can see it over there, where our scene in Tabga takes place. This was the area of the religious Jews. Here you had many Pharisees. You had maybe some Sadducees too. But the northeast quadrants, the side Bethsaida is on, was known for producing zealots. Was known for producing zealots and zealot movements. These were guys who wanted to overthrow Rome and just take everything over. Zealots. Always plotting. And they, especially the area up there in the right corner known as Gamla. Uh, that was a hotbed for zealots. And they, th this area would spawn these movements that would want to undermine and overthrow Rome at both the local and like national levels. Down in the southeast quadrant, this is where paganism ran rampant. 
This is where all the religious uh, Jews up in the Northeast, hey, they didn't want their kids going down here for parties, right? Uh, they didn't want them to go down there for school. They didn't want them to go to the mall down there, right? Uh, it, it's known for its worldliness and its paganism. It's rife with Gentiles. And down in the southwest corner of this quadrant, this is where Rome planted its flag. Tiberius was the important capital city, especially for Herod Antipas. And there had been a sacred graveyard, a Jewish burial ground in this area, right where Tiberius is. And Rome came along and built right on top of it. Now imagine how that would have made those up in the northern, the northeastern quadrants feel or the northwestern quadrant. Would have saddened them and enraged them. And so what we're going to see is at certain points in Mark's story, Jesus, he's going from one place to another, one area to another. And if we have our geographical bearings, those stories that we're going to hear about, suddenly they fall into this context and they brim with new insight and meaning. And so already we should be tuned into something then. Andrew and Simon are from that northeast quadrant, quadrant one maybe, where we can call it, the, the the side we have zealots on, right? They're from that territory, Bethsaida. And they've crossed over into quadrant four, where the religious Jews are, the religious Jew territory. And that's where Jesus calls them. That's where Jesus' own housing will be. And he's calling them into a new way, not into zealotry, but a new movement, a new society, a deep community, a new kingdom of God, and they'll go fishing for people with Jesus in all of these other areas. They're going to confront, as they do that, zealots and pagans, those of various Jewish stripes and those in league with Rome, and they are to share the same agenda as Jesus when they go into these places and meet these people. Followership that leads to the creation of a brand new society, a brand new empire, a brand new temple, and this deep community, this society is characterized by good news. The good news is characterized by being with the poor, seeking release for captives, and seeking deliverance for the oppressed. Good news of release Sight, deliverance, and welcoming God, a deep community marked by God with us. These fishermen are to go into places, some places that they'd rather avoid. Some places that they've probably avoided for a long time or a lifetime. And they're to go there and be the good news and share the good news, to bring deep community there to mess people's lives up with the gospel in a good way. And I started by telling you this week, something messed me up. It did. It was tough. Um, out of nowhere, on Tuesday night, I'm laying on the couch, and I was thinking about an old high school friend. We stayed in touch for a long time. I just Googled his name because I haven't heard from him in a long time. A friend of mine, since childhood, always, always struggled, a very checkered past on numerous fronts. And for many years, he had been in a drug game, 
both selling and abusing. And when I Googled him, I, I clicked the first link and my jaw dropped. I want to show you what I saw. It was late at night, close to bedtime when I saw this. This is my friend Jeff. I could believe it, but I also couldn't believe it. He's in the midst of serving a four to five year sentence right now. And it messed me up. I went out, I went for a run at like 10.30. I was trying to like shake the image and I couldn't. I got in the shower, I was trying to shake the image and I couldn't. I went to bed and I tossed and turned, tossed and turned, tossed and turned and I couldn't shake the image. My heart's heavy. And I was thinking, you know, how could this happen? Why is it like this? And I started thinking about my years growing up. And I remember as a young boy uh, going to see my dad behind the glass at the prison, at the jail, when he was locked up. And I remembered going to see, I'm laying in bed thinking of all this. I remember going to see my Uncle Pat in county jail and lock up. And I remember my three cousins, whom I was with nearly every weekend growing up as a kid, uh, some going to the penitentiary and others going to county jail. I remember my mom being locked up. I remember my younger sister being locked up. My childhood best friend being locked up. And a friend who's been locked up for decades, who was just released a few weeks ago, and within a week of being released was already back in after 20-something years in. I had a friend visit uh, here last summer uh, right after we graduated high school. He robbed a bank or something and led the police on a high-speed chase and went to prison. And I could keep going. And as I started thinking about them and some of their mug shots that I had seen, it was messing me up. <laughs> and I realized something. I've realized this before. God, I could have been one of those statistics. I probably should have been one of those statistics. And when I started to think about how in the world did I make it this far without lockup? How, how in the midst of so many family members and this, this plethora of friends and acquaintances going down that road that I didn't, how? And all I can chalk it up to is God's grace. That's it. I chose to follow. That's it. I chose to follow. That's the difference. A life of followership. God's grace drew me into following and enabled me to keep following and will enable me to keep following. A life of followership. When I was just a high schooler, Jesus came along in my life just like he did to these fishermen in Tagba and said, come now, Michael, behind me. Follow. And I did. And I did. And all around me, though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. And it's made all the difference. 
It's messed me up, but in the best and most beautiful way ever. Bottom line, let God mess you up. And when he does, no turning back, no turning back. Amen? Stand and let me bless you. If you would, turn your palms upright and receive this benediction. And now, brothers and sisters, may you let God mess you up in the best and beautiful ways. And may you follow him even if no one else does. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace. Love y'all.